interesting week that I have had. I wish I could share with you all the stuff that God has brought into my world. But unfortunately, for me to share with you all of the stuff that I've had to deal with this week, I would have to divulge other people's stuff. And that's not appropriate, especially since I'm recording this sermon and putting it on the internet for the whole world to hear. So I can't tell you what has transpired this week, but I can tell you, oh my word, this has been a week that I would have preferred not to have gone through. And, ah! Right now, if I could have this morning, I would have told you all on the phone, we're not coming to church today, Pastor Bob's going out to Tina Hot Springs and soak. Because that's what he needs at this moment. His world has been a little bad this week. That's the best way I can say it. Now, I have been in the Word of God this week. I have been on my face before God this past week. And even so, folks, I sat right there, just in front of where Marlene's sitting, and I, remember last week I had the banner up here with the, the, the palm? With the, I sat here and screamed at the top of my lungs at God. I wasn't being unkind. I was just going... And I stopped, and then I left out of the room, and God never got mad at me for doing that. He allowed me to express the stress and frustration that I was feeling, and here we are. But I wanted to read to you this lovely quote that somebody put on Facebook, and I called him on it. I said, I want to know where that came from, because I'm not just going to take that. I want to know that it's... A real source. Well, he provided me with the real source. So, um, David Jeremiah, the pastor of the church, who also has a radio broadcast called Turning Point. Thank you. David Jeremiah was on Dr. James Dobson's family talk radio show last week. And he is quoted in that radio show as saying, Storms or problems in life are situations engineered by God to demonstrate our inadequacies so we will look at his sufficiency as our only alternative. Now, I was going to put that up on the screen, but it was too much for that tiny little screen. So I'm going to repeat that, okay? Storms or problems in life are situations engineered by God to demonstrate our inadequacies so we will look at his sufficiency as our only alternative. Now, David Jeremiah was relating in this radio program about the fact that he had developed cancer. And this is a man of God who is serving the Lord who literally got knocked down. All of the props came out from underneath him. And at that moment, he was forced to recognize that God is his source. God is his protection. God is his shield. God is his provider. And he said, basically, when all the props are knocked out, the only thing you can do is look up. But he said something in that statement that just kind of bothered me. He said that these situations that come into our life are engineered by God. I'll talk about that in a minute. Because, lo and behold, 
The choice of scripture for this week was Joseph. Not the father of Jesus. Joseph in his multicolored coat. And all of the stuff that happened in his world. Oh, let me give you one other quote before we get to Joseph. This was a woman who, who responded to that David Jeremiah thing. It was a friend of my friend. And I called her on hers too. But she was able to provide me with a source. And, <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> you and I are going to talk later. Because, oh my goodness. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm kidding. Everything, this is her quote, everything in our lives is perfectly designed for our spiritual growth. Isn't that special? Everything in our lives is perfectly designed for our spiritual growth. I'm just so happy that people are so good at being spiritual. Because I didn't want to be this week. I don't have time this morning, in the time that we have, to go through chapters 37 through 50 in the book of Genesis, okay? Because that's the story of Joseph. So let me give you the pared down thing, okay? Joseph has these really cool dreams where he sees that his father, his mother, and all of his siblings are going to bow down before him. They don't like those dreams, and as a result, he has problems in his family. Joseph's father is not a good father in the sense that he finds one favorite son, and he lets everyone else know that his son is a favorite by providing him with this fabulous outfit that makes him shine in front of everybody else. And all of a sudden, Dad sends his 17-year-old son out into the field to look for his siblings who had been out in the field for weeks taking care of the sheep. And as this multicolored, gold-adorned guy is walking across the fields, his 11 brothers go, Look at that dreamer. Here he comes. What is he going to do now? Gloat on us. You know, we ought to kill that guy and have done with him, have nothing to do with his life anymore. He'd be out of our hair. We'd no longer have a problem with him. Let's do it. And one of the guys, one of the brothers is like, oh, we can't do this, we can't. Why don't we just throw him into a pit? Okay, let's do that. So they throw him into a pit and then they sit down to have lunch. And all of a sudden a caravan of traders comes through on their way to Egypt to do sales of their wares. And these guys say, hey, why don't we make some money off this instead of just killing them? So they pull them up out of the pit and sell them to these Midianite traders who are traveling through the Fertile Crescent on their way down to Egypt. And so now, this troublemaker, this problem child, the one who has been there, the, the burn underneath their saddle is finally out of their lives. They take that multicolored coat that's adorned with gold, they shred it, they cover it with goat's blood, and they bring it back to their father. And they say, is this your son's coat? Imagine the pain that those kids caused to their daddy who loved his son desperately. And the father looks at it and says, he's dead. My son is dead. I will go to my grave mourning my son. None of that's a good story. But that's not what we're looking at this morning. Now, Joseph, who's now in handcuffs, being led to Egypt by these Midianite traders. And we don't know what they do. We All we know is when they get to Egypt, they sell him to this guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar happens to be a really high official in the court of Pharaoh. He's the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. And Potiphar sees that Joseph is a blessed man, and everything Joseph does is blessed, and Joseph succeeds in everything. So Potiphar says, well, I'd be foolish not to let him be in charge of all of my household. So he literally says to all of his household, you see this guy here that I just bought a few months ago? He's now in charge. 
Everything in this household, he has a say over. Everything, except my wife. It's as if I'm talking to you when he talks to you. Joseph was an honorable man. Joseph, again, 17, 18, 19 years old, honorable man, who is serving God to the best of his abilities within the circumstances that he's in, and all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife, the scripture says, Potiphar's wife looks at him and goes, hmm, this guy's good looking. I got the hops for this young man. And her husband out doing his business, so she says, come here, I want to talk to you. And he comes in over to her and she's like, come on, let's have some fun together. He's like, I can't do that. He literally says, I cannot commit this sin against God and my master, who has entrusted to me everything in this house except for you. I won't do that. And so he leaves. And it says in the scriptures, he avoids her for as much as he can, but one day he happens to go into the house, and lo and behold, there is nobody in the house but her. And she grabs him by his tunic, literally trying to pull him into her bedroom. And he wrestles out of it and runs half naked out of the house. And she's furious. And so she takes that tunic and lays it on the bed next to her. And she waits. And when her husband comes home, she says, Look at what your servant, your faithful servant did. He came in here and tried to rape me. And Potiphar, furious, doesn't even listen to Joseph's side of it, picks him up, throws him into prison, puts him into the pit, Pharaoh's prison, because he's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Years pass, literally years pass. He's in the prison. Again, God blesses everything that he does. Everything that he does is blessed, even though he's in the pit. And so the jailer said, everything he does is blessed. I might as well let him be in charge and let him make some decisions. So again, Joseph is risen up to the point of number two in the prison. He's a prisoner, but he has privileges because of his gifting and because of God's blessing on his life. Well, there comes a point where the baker and the cupbearer for Pharaoh fall out of favor with the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh throws him into the pit, and they're down there in jail. And one night, both of them have a dream, exactly the same night. They wake up from their dream, and they, well, they're all in distress. They can't figure out what's going on. And Joseph, they hear, knows how to interpret dreams. And so he comes up, and they say... We have a dream. Can you tell us what it means? And he says, I can't, but God can through me. God will speak to you through me. And so, he listens to the baker's dream. He listens to the cupbearer's dream. He says, good news, bad news. Cupbearer, you're going to go back to your job. Baker, you're going to be dead in three days. And exactly what he prophesied through the dream, or or translated through the dream, happened. And what he said to the cupbearer was, when you get back to with the Pharaoh, when you see him, tell him about me. I'm here. It's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. I was living honorably. I am here under false accusation. Please say my name to the Pharaoh. Get him to know who I am so that I can get some help. Well, it says in the scriptures that the cupbearer does indeed go back after three days, but he forgets all about Joseph. And Joseph languishes in the prison for a number of years still. Now, what time, how, how old was Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery? Seventeen. Pharaoh has a dream. In Pharaoh's dream, there are seven sheaves of corn that are fabulous, glorious, strong, beautiful, and then seven that are weak and famished. And then the weak and famished ones, the ones that are all scraggly, come up and eat up the corn. And it says that they don't even look like they had anything to eat, and they're, they're just nasty. And then the same thing, six, sleek cows, seven sleek cows, they're fat, they're beautiful, and then seven other sleek cows come up out of the river, and they eat the first seven, and they look still sickly and gaunt and nasty, and then the Pharaoh wakes up, and he's so disturbed, and he goes to his magicians, and he goes to his wise men, and he tries asking for help, and no one can give him an interpretation. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer goes, oh, I'm a bad guy. 
I, Pharaoh, I remember, remember when you put me in the baker in the prison and the, well, there was this guy there who can interpret dreams. Bring him here, the Pharaoh says. So, it says the scripture that Pharaoh, that, that Joseph has to shave and change his clothes and take a bath and then he goes to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh says, can you tell, interpret my dream? He says, I can't, but God can. So he tells him the dream, he interprets it and the Pharaoh says, oh my word, what are we going to have to do? Because there's going to be seven years of fat, of feasting, seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And Joseph then tells the Pharaoh, you need to find somebody who's wise, who can put together a plan so that you can save the food that's coming in the years of plenty so that it will last through the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh all of a sudden says, well, who else but you? And so it says in the scriptures, literally, that Joseph, who was the son of a, 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 a sharecropper, if you will, he was the son of a, a shepherd in Canaan, now he's been raised up to literally be the vizier of Egypt, the number two, the prime minister to the Pharaoh. And now seven years of plenty happen. So now Joseph is 37 years old. It's 22, 20 years since he was sold into slavery. And then the years of famine start. And about a year to a year and a half, maybe two years in, the famine has hit Canaan, where Joseph's family lives. And Joseph's family comes to Egypt requesting some food from the only place where there is food, and Joseph has an interaction with his brothers. But he doesn't let him know who he is. But remember the dream that Joseph had? His brothers bow down before him. A prophecy is fulfilled. And then Joseph sends his brothers back with food enough for the family. But he's made inquiry about his father. Is he still alive? And the other brother, Benjamin, that he didn't see in this group. And they talk to him about it, and then finally they go back. And then another period of time passes, enough for the food to, that he sent with them to be eaten and be gone. And then Ju J Jacob says to his sons, go back and get more. And they say, we can't. Because he said, we can't come to see you unless, our son, unless your son Benjamin comes with us. And, and Judah's like, I mean, Jacob's like, you can't take Benjamin. He's the only one left of my daughter, of my, of my wife. You can't take him. And he said, well, then we can't go get food. And he said, all right, take him. I'll just, I, if he doesn't come back, I'll, I'll just grieve for him too. And so finally they go to Egypt. And this is where the story is being picked up. Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. Joseph is meeting with his brothers. Chapter, uh, verse 1. Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. And so there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it and Joseph said to his brothers come close to me and when they had done so he said I'm your brother Joseph the one you sold into Egypt and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you for, now, for two years now, there have been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will still not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save lives by a great deliverance. Joseph, of all people in this story, had every right to exact vengeance against him. 
human perspective, he had every right. From the human perspective, he had the power to do it. He literally could have declared them dead and their bodies buried in the sand in the desert and no one would have ever known. But he chose not to because he said, I see God at work in this. It is God who orchestrated all of this. No, my life has not been pleasant for the last 22 years. But God has orchestrated all of this for a reason. And I'm letting you know, you're off the hook, guys. You know what's sad? If we continue in this story, finally Jacob and his sons move to Egypt and everything's great and Jacob blesses everybody and then Jacob dies and it says immediately after Jacob died in chapter 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they then said, what if Joseph is still holding a grudge against us and he wants to pay us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And so they went, sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. Ask, I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. They're still playing a game of deception. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the, God, of, the, of the God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, he wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. And Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. That's not how Bob would have done it. Mm, Bob would not have been that good. But the thing that the thing I need to understand is, or thing that, that I need to recognize in all of this, is Joseph had this interesting perspective, this interesting worldview. He literally kept saying over and over again, God's in control. God's doing this. God has orchestrated this. God is the one. I cannot cry against you or any of my circumstances because God has ordained this for a specific reason. And I'll be flat out honest with you, I struggled with this idea of God's sovereignty for a number of years. Not that I don't believe in God or that he's in charge, I understand that. But how do I truly relate to him between him and me? Am I the robot that he pushes the button and I do? Or is it, as I try to explain to the kids, a symbiotic relationship where I am working along with God and he is inviting me to join him in the work. And so, therefore, he is sovereign and he is Lord, but I have a say in the matter. And so the question that I, I struggled with this week in the stuff that I was facing, is the Lord really in charge? If you look at Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 to 7, I'll just read it to you. 
I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. However, in another place in Scripture, I can point to you that everything is left to chance. You know, the, we live in a broken world as a result of the fall, blah, 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 blah. It's a sinful world. Adam and Eve did it. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 say, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the strong, the bread is not to the wise, nor are riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man doesn't know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. If God's in control, why does the evil stuff happen suddenly? Why are snares and traps and pits and vile stuff happening? Well, maybe it, it should be that God is not in control of the people that he's not in relationship with, so the rest of us who are in right relationship with God should have the blessing of God and have everything good and not fall into sickness and not have our households broken into or have our families torn apart or have our people in our lives die from horrible, horrible, horrible disease. And then I come into the New Testament where Paul, speaking to the people, says, In him we live and move and have our being. Joseph had the benefit of hindsight in chapter 43, 45, and 50. He'd already lived through the horrors. He'd already been unjustly thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, imprisoned falsely, forgotten, and then ultimately raised up. He was already past the dark time. He was now living la vida loca. He now was in charge. He now had all the blessings. He had the blessings before, but he was in darkness before. Now, he could look back and go, duh. Yeah, now I see why God did allow all that into my life. Why God brought that into my life. Because of course I needed all of that for what I'm doing today. I mean, I've testified to that myself. I was called into the ministry at the age of 16. But God would not let me become a pastor until my late 30s, early 40s. Because he had to take me through a crucible to prepare me for this job. And no, it wasn't fun. And no, I didn't like it. And no, I got upset all through the process because it didn't make sense. 
God, why will you, why don't, how come, what is the, oh. It's really easy to say, oh, God's in charge when you got hindsight, when you're past it. But when you're going through the day-to-day, moment-by-moments, literally by the fingernails, hanging on, going, God, God, you have to be my strength because I don't have it anymore. It's, it's real hard to see him as sovereign, Lord, in charge. And I don't have an answer for the, why does God allow evil to exist if indeed he is the sovereign? That's another 17 sermons, and I'm not even going to go there this morning. But there is one thing that I do want to focus on this morning as we're closing this down. I had to pull out the theology books this week. Because I had to say, you know, uh, this, this story and everything I've been talking about is talking about a theological term called providence. God, sovereign, is over all. And he, somehow, some way, is in charge of it all. And I struggled. <laughs> and I spent hours on my face, in his word, talking with fellow Christians, telling, talking with fellow pastors. And I finally broke out the theology book to see if I could find something to help me. And this is what I read. I'm not going to quote it because it's way too long. When we think about the providence of God, there are three elements to this providence. Conservation, preservation, Government. Conservation is God's relationship to the physical but inanimate world. Okay? The rocks, the elements, the trees. They're, they're, animate. they're animated, but you know what I mean. In the idea that autumn always follows summer. Winter always follows autumn. Drop a ten-pound rock off of a cliff. The rock will fall. It will not float away. That's conservation. God's work in the inanimate world, universe, always the same. In our human vernacular, we might say the laws of nature. Okay? You can count on it, it's not going to change. Why? Because God is sovereign. And in his providence, he conserves all of the inanimate universe. Now, the next one, preservation. God works in all living things. For example, if I were to quote a scripture verse, Matthew 10, 29 says, 
Are not two little sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them falls to the ground without God's consent and knowledge? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, God, the Holy Spirit, gives gifts to different people in various ways. To one, he gives the gift of faith. By the same Holy Spirit, he gives extraordinary powers of healing. And it goes on and on and on. And that phrase right there, extraordinary powers of healing, is what I keyed in on. Because in this idea of God's providence preserving in the, in the living world, we have to trust God and God alone to bring healing. Okay? I'm sick. I go to the doctor. The doctor observes. The doctor listens. The doctor thinks. The doctor processes from their previous experiences and knowledge and says, my best guess is this is what's going on. And from everything I know, if I were to apply this treatment to that which is going on, you should recover. Did the doctor in any way have the power to speak and it go away? Or to push the magic button and it go away? No. God's preserving providence in the living world has said, if you suture a laceration, those cells will heal back together again. Blood will coagulate. So you understand what I'm saying? The doctors don't do the healing. The doctors do the best that they can to bring about the natural healing. They provide the environment for that to happen. <clears throat> then this idea of government. This is where God interacts with humanity. God's providence, providential treatment of humanity is not that we are his robots. It is that he asks us to join him in the work that he needs accomplished. And we can choose to say yes or we can choose to say no. And the end result, he then must deal with. And in a small, tiny little way, that's one answer to why there's evil in the world. Because God doesn't treat humans as if we were robots. He invites us to join in the work. And if we refuse, then the negative result has to be dealt with. And in some cases, that negative result brings death or horror, or evil. So, understanding all of that, then looking at my situation, and I'm not going to share with you my situation, but looking at my situation, I have to understand that God's, conser I mean, excuse me, God's conserving providence, the ability to make sure that the gravity still stayed in place, that the wind 
blowed properly and that the rain came when it was needed and all that. None of that was affected by what was going on. God still kept that in place. He was still sovereign in control. And in God's preserving providence, there was still healing taking place in physical bodies. And when people ate food, it was digesting. And when people interacted, it still worked all the way it's supposed to. So God was still in control. But in my particular situation, the governing providence of God, where God works in the hearts of humanity when it comes to moral choice, God didn't treat the people in my life like robots. God allowed the people in my life to make moral choices for or against what God was offering to them. And the end result is, I got stuck with the fallout. Did that negate God's sovereignty? No. Did it mean that God is no longer God? Do I like it? No. And someday, the Lord willing, I'll be able to look back on this time with my 2020 hindsight and say, that's why God allowed that. Because see, God has the power to override some things. And I don't want to get into the what he will and what he won't and when he does and what he... Because we could go for days. But the way God chooses to work with us, in order to give us the freedom to say yes or no, there has to be the reality that if we say no, bad will happen. So, until I get to my 2020 hindsight... deal with this as a Christian. Because he's looking at Joseph. What did Joseph do? In all things he brought honor to God. In all things he acted uprightly. In all things he did nothing that he would have to be ashamed of later. Or would have to recant. Or would have to make up for. The key for me in this how do I respond while I'm in the moment dealing with all of the stuff of this fallout from some other person's poor moral choice. How do I pray? Oh God! Strike him with lightning! Likelihood that's not going to happen. Oh God! Cut him! And don't let it heal! Likely not going to happen. Oh God, force him to make the right choice! Likely not going to happen. But God, you said if I pray anything according to your word and ask it in your name, I'll get what I ask for. Not quite, Bob. Last night, again, stupid Facebook, last night, a friend of mine on Facebook, as I'm closing out my day, I just kind of looked on something and this person wrote, 
Well, I applied for two positions with the school district, one with Lathrop High School and one with Barnett. I'm qualified for both, but so are all of my colleagues who also applied. I wish everyone God's will. And the Lord was like, Put that in your sermon. Because see, Bob would have said, God, you know my desire. It's my heart. I'm qualified. I deserve it. Give it to me. It's like the two teams at the end of the, each end of the football field, both praying, oh God, let us win. One of them's not going to get their answer. Genesis chapter 43, verse 14, and I close. May God Almighty, this is uh, Jacob talking, when his sons are being sent the second time to try and get food from this vizier that they don't know is their brother. But he won't let us back unless we take Benjamin. Well, Benjamin will not come back and I'll be brought down to my grave in further mourning He literally says this as he sends Benjamin off. May God Almighty grant you mercy before this man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me though, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. And the Lord showed me that this morning as I was still wrestling with what I needed to say to you. He said, do you see Jacob's heart, Bob? In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of his turmoil, may God show mercy in allowing this to happen. Because you see, Joseph, being a person of free will, did not have to do what God was asking him to do. Joseph could have very easily said, off with their heads, all of them, and gone on with his life. And in the eyes of humanity, he would have been justified. Jacob, knowing they had no control over the situation, knowing there was a potential for increased horror in his life, said, we have no choice but to press on through this darkness and may God have mercy on us as we do. And the Lord said to me, Bob, when you're in the midst of the darkness and the storm is raging around you, don't ask for me to stop the storm, don't ask for me to move the storm, don't ask for me to protect you through the storm, ask for my mercy. Because I know what's best. I can bring about good through all this darkness. I can make it right. Trust me. Ask for my mercy. And let me be the one to decide the what, the who, the how, the when. And when you get to the other side of it, we'll talk. Well, if it wasn't for anybody else in this room... It was for me. And I'm very thankful that my father shared that with me this week. 
It's been a crucible, believe me. But he is sovereign. He is in charge. And I trust him implicitly. Let's pray.